Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording within three prisons across the Colorado Department of Corrections. Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Sterling Correctional Facility. Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Denise Price. Andrew Drake. Terry Mosley Jr. Sean J. Marshall. Ashley Hamilton. Sarah Berry. Brett Phillips. Angel Lopez. Travis Barnes. Matthew Labonte. Ms. Grant. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. Because we recorded this season virtually across so many sites, there's going to be moments where our sound quality is not as perfect as we wanted it to be. We'll ask for your understanding and let you know that we're always working to provide a wonderful listening experience. Where do we start? How do I start? I don't even know because I'm like, we're always asking questions. We're always asking questions, right, Andrew? And did you know that I traveled to the south of France for a whole entire summer? You went to the south of France? Denise, do you know that that's one of my life destinations that I have to go to before I die is to go to the south of France? But um, no, I did not know that. Uh, Who did you go with? Did you go with family? Was it a school trip? I know you were poor as a as a child, so so I know you couldn't afford it. <laughs> Not laughing at the uh, the monetary conditions of your childhood, you know. I'm just saying. Uh, no, I wish I would have been one of those uh, kids that had that opportunity. No, actually, no, none of that's true. Honestly, to be honest, I just lied to you. You never lie. You know why would you lie about that? <laughs> well, so you asked me why would I lie, and I got to ask back, why would you believe me? I don't know. Just just because you told me so, I guess. And that's the thing that I'm trying to point out as we introduce sentencing laws. I want people listening to really ask themselves why the false narratives are accepted and why we perpetuate them when we know they are proven incorrect time and time again. You know, I don't know why people do that. That is a good question. And that's a question that we've asked ourselves since the beginning of this podcast. We'd bring up topic after topic, and we always kept landing on sentencing laws and the disparity of the sentences to certain crimes or to the lack of accountability that some of those sentences give. And it sometimes becomes a lie. And I know it led us to ask and wonder, where is the justice actually at? I I know. And I remember we would wonder also... Because I I think that's the thing is a lot of people don't understand the space. It felt sacred. It still does, even though we're in virtual rooms. Right. Because we are accountable and as as us as human beings. But I know we've all wondered how justice is really given for victims. And also holding the humanity of the perpetrators in the same hands. And I know that 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 is a a job I don't want to have to do. And thank God there's lots of people that do want that job. And I know that the answer to the question of how do you hold both of those, it lives in the space between the two of the cause and the effect of crime and why crime happens. And then also, how do victims feel honored, justified? And so I think sentencing laws really have to be talked about because it's the dirty muck of all the truths to all of it as our history and we've un- we've we've kind of unraveled that as this, as these episodes have gone on over this last couple this year about why we are where we're at right now and i think sentencing laws have to be spoken about because they do guide the legal process in the pursuit of this cause and effect and finding, you know, the humanity and also justice for victims. I don't know if it necessarily finds justice for anybody, mm. but sentencing laws in our country do guide the uh, the criminal legal process. But what I want people to realize is that these laws that that sentence people who have committed crimes to prison or to probation or deferred sentences these these laws they are cookie cutter laws they're only thinking about the crime right they're not taking into account the harm or the people or the circumstances or the trauma or or all of the different ingredients that have to come together for harm to occur they are uniform laws that 
that really remove the human element. And it's been my experience that they're not fully taking into account what the victim truly desires or wants. Yeah. And and as a matter of fact, what what comes to my mind is a situation that that a friend of ours, that a friend of ours, Denise, really, he just went through it. Uh, he just went through a victim offender dialogue here in Sterling Correctional Facility. And and for those who are listening who don't know what the victim offender dialogue is, mm-hmm. uh, that that's a situation when the victim of a crime reaches out to uh, the Department of Corrections and seeks out the perpetrator of the crime that they fell victim to in the hopes of receiving some sort of answers or or maybe even closure to the harm that they suffered. Right. Anyway, the victim in our friend's case uh, stated how he has been trying to contact the court system and has been trying to contact different authority figures uh, to speak his piece, to speak to how he felt and how he how he currently feels and how none of them have been listening to him and how no one has returned his calls. Only the Colorado Department of Corrections has listened to him and and heard his voice. And really, uh, to me, Denise, that that's so sad because because as the victim, he is the one that was most impacted by the crime. He was the one most harmed. And according to him, no one is giving him room to voice his truth. So I say it again, in my opinion, this approach to justice doesn't serve the needs of victims. And it certainly does not offer rehabilitation to the uh to the person who victimizes others, at least uh, not in the way that the law is currently written, that is. And and this goes both ways, right? Because sometimes a sentence is too harsh. And then there are other times when a sentence is too light. The sentence serves as nothing more than really just than just like a slap on the wrist. And when that slap on the wrist is too light, sometimes the seriousness of the harm caused is not respected and true accountability does not take place. And that in turn can lead to a person reoffending and harming even more people. It sounds like when you talk about what just happened with the the victim's desire for restorative justice practices, that's what it sounds like. And I think that that's often what a lot of people think happens. You know, I think I think if people are charged with a violent crime, I know my mother was a, a false believer for a long time about like how the system really is and that that if crime happens, you're going to be taken care of. And um, if we did have restorative justice practices and the victim's needs were actually met through sentencing laws, I think you could hold people accountable and also give the victims the honor they deserve and also the reparation they need. Most definitely. And you are right. I am talking about restorative justice. I am talking about restoration and one size fits all. Sentencing laws really ties the hands of judges and it ties the hands of prosecutors and defense attorneys because they're all people. Mm-hmm. And going back to our episode, Patty Cates of Prison, where Ashley Ratcliffe says that she's had conversations with prosecutors and And they understand that sometimes the situations surrounding crime is nuanced. But because of the law, there's only one thing that they can do because of the the way that the law is written. And it says that only this particular solution can be had for this particular crime. And it becomes a cookie cutter solution. And because of that, there there is no leeway. There's no bend, And it leaves very little room for restorative practices. Because the law focuses on the law that was broken and not the harm and the people that were impacted. Right. And I hope people think about that. I mean, would you agree? What I want people listening to think about is how this has been built and where we are at now in our evolution as people holding humanity, honoring victims And we can't do it with the current sentencing laws. We have to be engaged. Otherwise, these laws do impact all of us. Whether you're a victim of a crime or not, you are impacted by crime. And knowing sentencing laws, understanding them, understanding the disparity that happens so often. And I I think that too often we want to think that it's so nice, cut and dry, and it all makes sense, and it's perfect. And it's not. This is a complex issue, crime is. And I want people to realize that the sentencing laws in place now, they're very 
like you said, cookie cutter. And that, that can't serve nuanced, complex issues. No, it can't. And in this episode of Within, we introduce John Sherman, a formerly incarcerated man that gives us an intimate interview in regards to justice. And we talk about how the fluid laws that govern have given this man his freedom. And we also get the awesome chance to speak with Kristen Nelson, director of the Powell Project, Harvard Law School graduate and author of The Pandemic as a Portal, a Denver Law Review article. And she provides us with a very dynamic perspective. She does. And I just wanted to say, I know that you said the fluid laws that govern, and I really want people to understand it's the historical fluidity of it and where we're at now. I think that that needs to be pointed out that they are fluid and they have changed, but they need to change again and they need to change faster, I think. We're talking about human lives here on both sides of the both sides of this, the people in prisons and the people that are victims of crime. And if we don't move fast enough, what's the harm in that generationally? It is about restoration. It is about redemption. It is about legacy. And it's also a lot about hope. And hope is what our first interviewee, John Sherman, has an abundance of. And after spending over three decades in prison for murder, he tells us how his life has become a mission of hope uh, for himself and others as he lives his days in honor of the victim of the crime that sent him to prison. And our producer, Terry Mosley Jr., interviews him about his journey and what motivated him to apply for commutation eight times. Eight different times this man applied for clemency and then finally received it. Um, so really it wasn't even the sentencing laws that, that gave him his freedom. It was actually just the use of clemency that allowed this man to now be free to speak to restoration, redemption, legacy, and hope. And he speaks to a well, so let's hear him out. Old dreams and piercings crucified on the cross of Christ. We gotta learn, but I'm concerned about the loss of life. It's very heavy for a cold killer. In the eyes of God, is there forgiveness for a drug killer? Lord, please. John Sherman, welcome to Within. I'm so thrilled to be here with you today. And I, Terry Mosley Jr., will be interviewing you today about your experiences with your sentencing and with your eventual clemency. Welcome, my friend. Thank you. So I'd like to start off. John, can you tell us kind of the facts of your time, a little bit about when you came to prison and what your sentence looked like at the start and how it evolved? So uh, after a pretty short trial, I think it was short, it was like a, a week and a half, I was sentenced to 40 to life with a term of parole after 40 years served, which is uh, basically when I heard the judge say that, well, I'm done, I'm cooked. I was uh, resolved. To have my family, you know what? You don't come see me. Don't worry about me. I'm a dead man. You walk, don't, you're talking to a dead man. So that's how it was in the beginning. You know, when you first get sentenced, that's a, that 40 to life or 40 or life without is everything kind of just evaporates after that. So I went to the ODU. That was a, a stark reality. It was the old territorial. It was the prison that you used to see in the movies you know, with the clanging bars, and it's just a, a depressing situation to be in, especially being my first sentence, my first felony. Uh, I had never been to prison before, so um, walking into that place was, uh, it was surreal. It was not like, like I say, it's not like life anymore. It's something different. Chung, let me interrupt you for just a second. For a little context for our listeners, what year is this when it happens, and how old are you? I'm 30 years old, and it's uh, 1987, 86. Okay, thank you. And so, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a monster. It was it was a heavy weight. And like I said, my my I come from really good family, and they've been by my side constantly for 34 years that I was in prison. They never gave up on me. They never gave me the, the any indication that they were. Uh, disappointed in me or anything, but they knew the circumstances of the case. But again, initially, I was like, don't come visit me. Don't, you know, don't send no money. Don't do anything for me because it's a waste of time. Fast forward probably uh, two years. I woke up, literally woke up one morning and said, what am I doing in prison? I do not belong here. I really wanted to be a, someone my dad would be proud of. 
because I was so proud of him. He was my hero. So I, I said to myself, well, what am I doing here? So I started to research who I was, what brought me to prison, what kind of uh, circumstances in my neighborhood or in my family gave me the mindset to do what I did to the person that I did it to. So I researched all kinds of books. And back then they had uh, Pell Grants for prisoners. And so I took psychology, you know, all the basic stuff, psychology, sociology, I did well in those, but I didn't find the answer. So I started searching the, the library, and it, you know, a prison library back then, <laughs> they didn't have much in there. They were concerned about escape and murder and mayhem. So most of the books were just really lightweight reading. And I stumbled across a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And so one of the first things that I learned from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is our greatest freedom is in between the stimulus and the response, what happens to us and our response to that. And in that little moment, all of our paradigms come into play. And that's when I began to learn that I come from a good family. I was taught principles, but what I did was adopt street values. And one of the street values that I adopted was, if you pull a gun on me, which is likely gonna happen in my neighborhood anyway, and you don't use it, I, by law, by street law, I had to come back and get you because you're playing with my life. And that's what happened to me. Uh, just adopting that street law changed my life, changed my life for 34 years in prison. So when I learned that, I decided what I owed my parents, myself, and most importantly, my victim. He died in the alley. When I was a kid, a man got murdered in the alley behind my house. And I thought that was the worst thing a person could ever do is die in the alley. And years later, that's where my victim died, in an alley, by himself. So I owe him something. And I could be the same ruthless, violent individual I was when I met him and encountered him, or I could dedicate my life because Stephen Covey also talks about leaving a legacy. I took his legacy away. I didn't want his legacy to be the guy that died in the alley. And so I dedicated my life to calling his name. His name is James Floyd. To anything I accomplished, I attributed to, to that moment when I decided that I want to live my life for him. I want to be the man that, that if whatever existential circumstances come about, I ever meet him again, you know? I can say that you changed my life. I'm sorry that what happened to you by my hands, the, the blood, your blood that stained my hands changed my life. And uh, I wanted to do it for my family. Most of all, I wanted to do it for myself. So, so John, let me ask you, um, what you're saying is hitting me very intensely. But let me ask you this. How do you wash away the rust? You got to lubricate it with hope. Without hope, you have those guys that never get out. Even when they are out, they're never out. And so my hope became something better for myself and my victim. My hope became if I do good, there's rewards for that. It's, it's all through society. I wasn't trying to be rich or anything. I just wanted to do good. I just wanted to be a person that... My victim can look back on and say, yeah, you, your life improved after this, this situation. I educated myself. I became a Seven Habits core group member, and I became a peer demonstrator. And so helping others, educating yourself and, and educating others became my lubricant, you know, to, to, rush that, to wash that rust away. I, I wanted to be a better person, and the better person to me was a, a guy that contributed to make the environment better. So that's what I pursued every morning. There are people who are listening, who are not there yet, who do not believe that they have something to contribute, who don't believe that they are salvageable, who have, who have let the rust grow in cement, but they are listening to this now. What do you want them to know? Uh, geez, that's, uh, and I've been there. I've been that guy. So um, what I would tell them is, uh, you know, you got to know what you want. And if you don't know what you want, you got to go find what you want. And if you want to be free, 
You have to establish yourself as a free person. Nothing comes overnight. Nothing. And I put in five commute applications. Can you imagine the first one? You know, my hopes are all up. An old convict told me, hey, man, you got an opportunity. You don't have to spend all this time in here. Try to get out on, on, on a commutation, on commute. And so I, I tried, and I didn't know what I was doing. Nobody taught me that. I had to teach myself. And it was a wreck, but I tried. You know, you got to do something. You can't lay up in the bunk. You can't spend your time underweight. You can't think that the yard is the place to be. It's not. Go to the library. Have your people, if you have people, send you something that's going to improve who you are. That's going to help you accomplish your dreams. But you have to grind. You have to make it, get it, get it done. My second commutation, I had a little bit more information because they sent it. They sent my commutation back and said, you're doing a good job, but uh, we can't let you out. You have too much time. And so I, you know, I was resolved that, you know, I'll learn better next time. And I got better and better and better. My time kept coming and going, coming and going. There's op political opportunities that I thought I had. They fell through, but I kept trying. You got to get up every morning and grind. Do what you got to do. I started preparing, like I said, in probably in 1990-91 for this day right here. And, it's, and I'm still in a transition. I still want more. You know, I got out without nothing, but I, I had what I had me. You know, and I trusted him. I trusted him to keep me going, and he has. There's been so, uh, so many challenges. When I, <laughs> when I got to the halfway house, I knew that I could get through this without a write-up because they guaranteed you're going to get a write-up when you come to the halfway house. And I, the, the staff told you that. And so I was like, no, you're not going to get me. And three days later, I got a write-up. I'm like, ah, man. But they make it so it's, it's, it's designed for that. To keep you on your toes, I believe, you know, to keep you doing what you got to do. But I survived that. I made that transition. I'm still making a transition. I get up every morning, as I did in the joint, and made a difference, not only in my life, but I tried to reach out to other people. I tried to teach people what I knew, you know, just, just giving that back uh, helped me move forward. And that's how, that's how I accomplished uh that thing. So, John, one of the things that hits me after all the commutation attempts, after 30 something years, how did you not give up on yourself when you know that the sentence tells you that you're not getting out, that you're going to die in prison? So <laughs> one of the tricks I have for myself is I took everything that DOC told me as a recommendation, because you talk about the, the inequities in sentencing the inequities of people leaving prison and why why is this guy get paroled and this other guy doesn't so there's no there's no uh defining line for me in that so i took it all as a recommendation that's why when someone tells me i would like to be out or that's my potential to be out or it's possible i can get out it was never just possible for me after a while it was probable and it was likely that I'm going to get out. And that and, and for the last year, I didn't know that this guy was going to commute my sentence. But for the last year, I, I asked God on December 22nd, 2018, I said, Lord, I'm going to live the rest of my this year as though I'm free. That's my faith. You take it from there. And I did that. And there was a chaplain, chaplain in, in DOC. He asked me, he said, uh, well, what are you going to do if you don't get this commute? <laughs> I said, that's not a thought for me. That's not a process. I, that's not something I process. I know I'm getting out. And when I did get the commute, he came to me and said, I admire your faith. But because that's all it is. It's just that hope has to be remain constant. Because if I give up, then people will see that. It will come through in my letters, I believe. It would come through in my conversation. It would come through in any communication I have with the world, either what I say or how I move, what I do. Those things always come up. So I never gave up. I never, after, after I decided that this is who I'm going to be, I never gave up. And I never put that as my mission 
to get out was not my mission. My mission was to be the best person I could. That would likely lead me to get out. So, so this just hit me right now. When did you get to the point where you felt you deserved to get out? I didn't. I still haven't. I never got to that point where I deserve anything. Look, I killed a man. You know, I, I, you know, a conscientious heart cannot pay for that. I can never give anything back. I can never say sorry enough. You know, I can never. And not only my victim, but it's there's a, there's a ripple effect. My family, his family. A guy that haunts me all the time is a, a paramedic that was testified in trial, how he was affected. And this was eight months after the incident. Uh, he came to court and was in tears, visibly shaking, telling his story. That that haunts me, you know. Uh, but I can't let that I can't let that destroy me either. I have to still be the best I can. Don't get me wrong and think that this is a, you know, really happy story. There's been some huge challenges in my life. I didn't do this by myself. I had people, DOC officers. I had administrators. I had counselors, teachers, family, people. That whole support system has moved me through this, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's, it's a, I, I haven't gotten over that. I've. I still don't know if I deserve it, but I'm going to use what I have to to better my life and someone else's, I hope. Thank you for that answer, because that brings me to my next question. When did you first realize that you had something to give others? I was raised that way. I lost my way with the street values, but I was raised that way. Uh, my mm-hmm. father was a businessman. Uh, my mother was an in-home, uh, uh, she had an in-home daycare. And they grinded. They wasn't rich or anything, they, but they grinded. They had what it took to feed five children and keep us in school and raise us the right way, all of that. So that's, that's inbred in me. But I lost my way through my teenage and early adult years and became what the streets decided they wanted me to be. And so uh, it wasn't hard to find that once I was separated from those values. And made the decision to be, uh, to return to that. All right, John, we're going to begin to wrap up here. I can't tell you how much you've impacted me. And here on within, we get to talk to some, some of the most amazing people. But I have to tell you that you're really something special, man. Straight up. I hope you know that. Which brings me to, you talked earlier about legacy. You talked about creating legacy for your victim and yourself. So let me ask you, what is your legacy? That he, uh, John Sherman, was uh, a man with a big heart and a creative mind. And those two coupled, uh, I hope, make someone else's day better. That's all. That means everything. You know, Denise, you know I love my quotes, right? (laughs) I think I have at least one quote in each episode. (laughs) But really, um, I love to quote our guests, especially when they say something profound. Uh, But right here, let me quote John Sherman. Your blood that stained my hands changed my life. That's pretty heavy because he's talking about a man that he killed, a man whose life he took. Your blood that stained my hands changed my life. It's so powerful because we're talking about real human beings here, right? This isn't a movie. And just the impact, the impact of someone's life was taken away and it changed John's life in such in such a way that that he lives his life in honor of the lost life. Just just the ripple effect of that is so complex and it's so amazing. 
because you have the ripple effect of harm. But what I love about John's story is that it just doesn't end in harm and it's still being written. And the victim of his crime, James Floyd, is being remembered still. He he isn't just some guy that died in an alley. John is honoring his memory. And again, it, it's a very complex issue. And I think what needs to be said, I want to say it is like he had a he had a life sentence to begin with. And that really it's a death sentence. Life sentences are death sentences and they're a death sentence to the spirit. And there's so much collateral damage when you sentence somebody to life in prison because they go into a community of people. And when you they don't have a spirit anymore, there's no rehabilitation. I'm getting emotional because I, I think of it. Like, I used to have a life sentence. And, yeah, lengthy sentences are not rehabilitation. They're not, re, they're not giving justice to victims. I mean, it'd be no different than just uh, having firing squads anymore. I know that seems extreme, but it's, I mean, you might as well. Man. And I agree with you, Denise, uh, because... Because you're saying, I'm sorry, I got—I don't mean to cut you off, but you're saying there's no hope. There's no redemption. You are, there's nothing left for you. You know, we've all heard that old adage about the pebble being tossed into the pond. And then you have the ripple effect, right? And and that's that's how we are as people, right? Think about it. The hand that's, that's, uh, that's tossing the pebble is our society the pebble being tossed is the person the impact the pebble has on the water is the harm that's caused the ripples of course are the ripple effect uh the pebble then sinks to the bottom of the pond and no one ever thinks about the pebble again so i think that in the name of healing we should dive in grab the pebble bring the pebble back out and take it back to the shore otherwise the pebble it'll just be lost to the deep and the darkness and and i think and and i don't know if i have the right to say this about john and the harm that he's caused i think i have the right to say this about the harm that i've caused in my own life but but i don't know if i have the right to say this about john and his victim but but I'm going to say this anyway. Uh, I th- I think that I don't I don't believe that John's victim died in vain. By the way, John lives his life currently. I do not believe his victim died in vain. Huh. And I don't know if I have the right to say that. And I think that it's a very heavy statement, but. We don't know we don't know, like Ashley always says. And I don't know what John's life would have been had he not come to prison for the reason that he came to prison. I know that through the interview, and he said that a conscientious heart cannot pay for that. And I know he was talking about his crime. And I think that that... I think what you say is is real, Andrew, but I also know that some people aren't at that elevated level to see beyond that. Certainly not. And then Denise, for that, what is what is the point of these long sentences? I wish I had an answer because if if I w- if you ask me and I say, well, a lengthy sentence is for retribution. The criminal code is written for rehabilitation. Those are two totally different ends of a spectrum. So I. I don't know why they're so long. Because to me, it says that at the age of 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, that you can't change. You're impossible. And through all of humanity, we have done nothing but evolve and change. It's hard for me to wrap my head around them when I think about it on that level. And I think it's because people want a clean, concise, easy answer. And there are no clean answers when you're talking about life and murder. And really, I think it's mainly because people are angry. They're just, they're angry. They're upset. And what I do is I, tr- I try to think of myself as a victim. I mean, right, we've all been victims to something. 
but when I put myself in the shoes of a survivor of a crime and I I really try to think of it in the mind that I was in before I began to fully believe in restorative justice and restorative practices um, when someone harmed me I would seek I would seek retribution because I would be angry mm. and I would want them to suffer and I would want them to experience a, uh, a great amount of pain because I didn't know how to express my anger but after having experienced different restorative practices that anger no longer resides in me and so I just think that anger is what our society practices and expects from crime and quote unquote justice and I find it intriguing sometimes it's disheartening but but it really intrigues me I'm intrigued by the thoughts and motivations mm. and different concepts of anger and how we as a society profess to be kind and giving. But when an ill is done or, or when an ill is committed, we go full uh, we go full metal jacket in, into into to uh, exile. Yeah. Exile into causing harm in the other direction. And it's so complex because there are times when we celebrate the same harm that we profess to abhor i think that that's the that's the thing is we shouldn't and i think that we as a society really need to address our beliefs um it's those false narratives that we've been taught our whole lives and you know just like how i started with a lie and here we are you know as the, there are just fundamental truths that exist and we have to acknowledge those and if humanity is is the center of our belief system then our laws have to change certainly they have to it would only make sense. And you know who else is challenging the status quo? Take a guess. Right? <laughs> Take a guess. Since we're built on questioning. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot of people challenging the status quo. I can't guess. Okay. I'll let you off the hook there. Kristen Nelson is who I'm speaking of. She's challenging the status quo and has been for years. And co-executive producer and co-creator of our podcast within and executive director of Denver University's Prison Arts Initiative, Dr. Ashley Hamilton, speaks with the director of the Powell Project, attorney Kristen Nelson. So listening to her talk to Kristen, I can tell it's two colleagues and friends sharing in a conversation, but the things that they talk about, I wish more people could share in conversations like that because I think we would understand people on a different level and respect them even deeper. And um, some of the stuff that she said, I was like, whoa, uh, coming from a lawyer, you would think that she wouldn't be so. Her conviction is something I think that people will hear. And coming from an expert as she is, I, I hope people listen and I hope it inspires people to take some action. So let's listen in as Ashley talks with Kristen about sentencing laws in our country and its effects on our greater society. Hi, Kristen. We're so glad to have you. Welcome. Um, it's really an honor to have you both as a friend here with us today, a friend of DU Pi, and also as an expert in the field. You have a pretty incredible career and you're doing amazing work and we're really grateful for all you do and grateful to have you. Welcome. Thank you. So Kristen, I really want to start by zooming out. You know, you and I spend all of our time in and around the criminal justice system, and you uh, obviously have an expertise in law and in sentencing. And I'm wondering if you can, for our listeners, sort of walk us back from a historical a historical lens and walk us through the way that the United States has crafted its sentencing laws, which I know is a huge question. So I'll let you sort of tackle from the point that you think makes sense. Well, I think that as a as a starting point, it's important to understand that what we have in the United States is not one sentencing scheme, but really 51. Um, we have, you know, each individual state um, has the ability to define crimes and create its own criminal code and also to establish its own sentencing scheme. And then, of course, we also have the, the federal system as well. And so it's really up to each individual state to decide how to define crime, um, how to punish crime. 
so, but with, you know, within that context, there have been a number of big picture trends in the United States over time. Prior to the 1970s and really up until maybe the mid 70s, early 1980s, that was an era of largely what's called indeterminate sentencing. The primary principle on which sentencing was based was rehabilitation. And judges tended to have a lot of latitude in terms of deciding what kind of sentence to impose. There would be, say, a range, a sentencing range that was imposed. Judges had a lot of discretion, and then it would really be up to the state parole board to decide, you know, whether and when a person had been, quote unquote, rehabilitated and and was ready for release. So that was sort of the the old era of sentencing in the United States. Just really quick, it's just interesting to notice from tracking a rehabilitative and sort of responsive, the way that our criminal justice system was responding in prison at that time also mirrored that. That was that was the heyday of the concept of rehabilitation. Yes. Inside as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, keep going. Yes. And, um, you know, correspondingly, there were far fewer people who were incarcerated back then. In the early 1970s, the total U.S. prison population was around 200,000 people. Oh, my God. Today, it's 2.3 million. Today in Colorado, there are more people serving life sentences than the entire prison population of Colorado um, in the 70s. So there's really been a dramatic shift over the course of several decades. Essentially, people on both sides of the aisle became dissatisfied with this system of indeterminate sentencing for several reasons. Folks on the left felt like allowing judges too much discretion created a system that resulted in arbitrary sentences. It allowed for different forms of of bias and discrimination to seep in. And so they were really unhappy with allowing judges to have so much latitude with sentencing. Folks on the right, on the other hand, felt like a lot of times sentences were too lenient. So really nobody was happy with the way that sentencing worked or became increasingly unhappy with the way that that things were playing out with these indeterminate sentences. And so I think there were a number of, of kind of broader societal factors that started playing into things in the 1980s and early 1990s. But that was kind of the the point in time in history where we started to see this decline of the rehabilitative ideal, this desire to see, quote unquote, truth in sentencing. It was the era of mandatory sentencing. It was also an era of a time when crime rates had begun to rise and crime really became very politicized. There was a famous incident in 1988 during the presidential campaign when a man named Willie Horton, who was participating in this furlough program in Massachusetts, committed a sexual assault and a, and a homicide while he was out on furlough or you know, this form of parole that really ended up tanking Michael Dukakis's presidential bid and became this hot button issue where even Democrats felt like they needed to be tough on crime. And can I just insert my yeah. can I insert myself really quick? Yeah. Do you think that this was connected and maybe I'm connecting dots where I shouldn't be, but do you think that this in any way just looking at the timing was a response could have been a response to coming out of the civil rights movement as well. Like I'm just thinking about, for example, the Rockefeller drug laws that were put into place in 1974, which really changed a lot of the name of the game in terms of how we sentence. That that was like the beginning of changing it, correct? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, this, the war on drugs, quote unquote, also started, you know, just kind of contributing to the way that we think about crime, how we define crime, appropriate responses to it. And there just there just became this, I think it became common belief that the way to reduce crime rates and, and solve, you know, social problems like drug addiction was through more incarceration. So yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot of different, there were a lot of different factors coming together, but it's pretty well documented that the early 1990s, 1980s to early 1990s was the era when sentencing in the United States really began to change. And so instead of this indeterminate sentencing that we had previously, 
many states shifted over to having sentencing guidelines where, you know, you'd have a chart where, you know, judges would maybe have like a small amount of discretion and a range, a sentencing range that they could work within. But the chart or the grid was the guidelines were largely governed by you know, a person's criminal history and the severity of the offense, whether certain aggravating factors were present, things like that. So the idea behind it was, you know, we're going to make things more equitable and fair by tying judges' hands a little bit and, and really relying on objective factors to determine, you know, what sort of sentences to impose. So we're no longer going to leave this in, in the hands of judges to just do whatever they want. We're not going to trust parole boards anymore. We're going to have truth in sentencing. We're going to impose sentences in a more rational way. Absolutely. That was the, that was the idea behind it. Okay, and so then long-term... The impact we see of that is what we have now, which is 2.3 million people currently behind bars and something like 7.4 million people in the criminal justice system altogether, something like that. And a very high rise, particularly in life without parole sentencing. So here we are and folks have been given the sentences they have been given over the last 20 to 30 years. I'm curious as a lawyer, as someone who's worked both on death row and um, with other folks serving LWOP and other amounts of time, what is your perspective currently on the way that, where, where we're sitting right now as it relates to sentencing? Do you mean like what sort of direction do I think things are going in? I'm going to ask that in a second, but I think I'm curious. You just kind of gave us like the lay of the land up until the 90s. So if you were to give us the lay of the land of of now. Oh, I think, I mean, I think that's where, that's where we still are. I mean, we're still kind of living that legacy. You know, I mean, I I think what what has happened, you mentioned life without parole. And I think that, I think that that's, that's a really, really good example of how, you know, we have become increasingly more punitive, both in the state and, and in this country over time. So before 1977, a class one felony or first degree murder in Colorado was punishable by life with the possibility of parole after 10 calendar years. Then in 1985, that changed to life with the possibility of parole after 20 calendar years. Um, I'm sorry, in between 1977 and 1985, it was life with the possibility of parole after 20 calendar years. Then from 85 to 90, it was life with the possibility of parole after 40 calendar years. And then in 1990, mid-1990, that changed to life without parole. And we currently have almost 800 people in the Department of Corrections in Colorado who are serving life without parole sentences. So, I mean, that's... And for... To play devil's advocate here for just a second, for folks who have fought for life without parole, who feel that maybe that is a appropriate way to respond, what would you say, I mean, in terms of just what you've seen in your work, is LWOP an appropriate way to respond to harm? I see life without parole as a death in prison sentence. I also don't believe that the death penalty is ever an appropriate response to harm that is caused, regardless of how egregious the harm is. I think that there are major problems with the way that the death penalty functions in our criminal justice system. The quality of representation that's provided, the number of errors that are often caught on ver- in various stages of appeal you know, later. I think it's a moral issue. It's a severe and final sentence. And I feel all of those things as well about life without parole. I think anytime you take such a draconian approach to and a categorical approach that doesn't allow for any consideration of individual circumstances, it's a very often, I mean, it's, it's a destructive, harmful punishment. I don't think that we are, are well served to impose mandatory penalties like that that don't account for the notion or the possibility or the idea that people can change over time. So, Kristen, I, I know you, outside of this interview, were dear friends. We work together. We share a lot of the same belief systems. And I know your heart for people. And I know how much in your work you think 
about victims, both the, and that both of us actually think about victims. And I think that maybe in taking a snapshot look at either your or my work, one might assume that that's not a part of our everyday thought process. But I think it's important to bring into the conversation here for victims who in particular life without parole or in other states, a death sentence. How do you hold that? How do you respond to that? I'm curious how you think about that while also holding all of these other pieces that we're discussing here today. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such a complicated question, as you know. I think that, first of all, I, you know, I, I do have a lot of compassion for my, for my clients and their families, you know, despite the fact that many of the people that I've represented have caused tremendous harm to others, and I, and I in no way mean to discount that. But I think that it's also important to, it's important to be able to hold all of that. It's always about the both and, you know, and I, and I think that I don't ever want to speak for victims, assume how a person might feel or, you know, what their individual journey might feel like or look like in terms of healing. But I also think that it also does victims a disservice to assume that everyone is served by more incarceration. I read Until We Reckon by Danielle Sered, who runs a, a restorative justice program focused specifically on, um, on violent offenses. And one of the things that she says in her book that I think is so profound is trauma is not resolved by the infliction of pain on another person, how much simpler things would be if it were. You know, I can understand and appreciate and even on some level sympathize with you know, the feeling of, of, you know, on the part of many victims, you know, the desire for retribution, the desire for punishment, the desire for the person who caused them harm to lose their liberty for a period of time. But I also, I also think that victims' needs are not particularly well served by the system that we have. I think a lot of times victims desire more than that. They need more than that. They deserve more than that. They deserve answers. They deserve apology. They deserve some form of restitution. And, and I don't think our current system does a very good job of meeting their needs in many, many instances. And so I think it's also just, it's sort of a mistake to assume that our system and our, the severity of our sentencing scheme as it exists today really does serve victims. So... I'm curious from sort of a philosophical, emotional perspective, why do you think we as humans, we never had to create the concept of life without parole. That was something that we as humans created as a way of responding to harm and violence. What do you think the desire behind that originally was? Well, I think that a huge problem with the way that we approach crime and punishment in this country is that really the entire approach is undergirded by these false narratives that the public has adopted about violence and about people who commit acts of violence. And I think that these false narratives um, that have been perpetuated by politicians and the media are attractive to people because they're simple, right? Especially in this country, but I think just human nature, right? Like we're attracted to simple solutions and it's much easier, it's less messy to divide the world up into good and bad. And it's easy to think of people, much easier to conceive of people who have caused harm as somehow less than human, these monstrous others, so to speak. And by doing that, by dehumanizing people who have committed acts of violence, we don't have to feel empathy. We don't have to concern ourselves with our well-being. And we can think about violent crime as this very simple problem to solve, right? We just banish people who have committed acts of violence from our midst. We throw them away. We push them out of our sight and out of our mind and we will make society safe again. So if we impose sentences like life without parole that don't 
uh, acknowledge their humanity or uh, afford them an opportunity to um, ever be a part of free society again, you know, then we can solve the problem of violence that way, right? Like that's a simple, attractive narrative and it's a simple, attractive solution. It's also deeply misguided and false. But I think that that's, that's what animates the desire for these excessive punishments is this belief that crime is largely the product of just individual choice and bad actors and that the solution to that is to just banish people from our midst, people who commit these acts from our midst. And, and you know, we could do so much better. We know so much better. There are thoughtful academics and experts, psychologists and researchers who have conclusively demonstrated through empirical research that the causes of crime and violence are so much more complex than that. They're complex social problems. Um, and we can't solve those problems by just locking people up forever. But it's difficult to get the public and to get politicians to understand the nuances because it requires us to confront our own society's own contributions to the system that we have. And that's just, it's messier and it's more complicated. And I think we shy away from, from those messy, complicated discussions. Thank you for that. I think it's so well said. And I guess I'll also maybe add to the mix that in addition to empirical research and data collection, we also have storytelling, which is exactly what we're doing here on Within and in other projects that we work on in DUPI and other folks are working on that I think also get at this nuance and this complexity. And I'm so grateful that we're getting to have the, this conversation because this is this is the shades of gray right here. My last question for you, Kristen, and I could talk to you forever and plan to, so. <laughs> I want to ask you where you think we're going. I know we talk a lot here in, in DUPI about feeling like we're in the center or maybe the eye of a storm. I often feel that in 10, 20, 50 years, we will look back and really see this cultural moment as a huge shifting point uh, for many reasons. I'm curious what you think. Where are sentencing laws going? Yeah, I mean, I, I have some mixed feelings about that. I I do, on on one hand, agree with you that I think that you know, you can feel the momentum kind of moving and shifting and changing, even just with some of the changes that have happened within the Department of Corrections, even with the fact that a program like DUPI can exist in the way that it does. And I do think that all of the conversations about racial injustice, my hope is that those conversations will lead to, to meaningful change. So on the one hand, I do feel I do feel very hopeful. On the other hand, I feel concerned because one of the things that I see a lot with respect to various reforms that are being offered and considered is that many of them exclude violent offenses, right? There's this relatively common approach to criminal legal reform these days that is focused on targeting the low hanging fruit, quote unquote, right? We didn't get a chance to talk about this in depth, but I think another myth, common myth about mass incarceration is that it's largely been driven by lengthy sentences imposed on nonviolent drug offenders. And that myth has been perpetuated for several reasons, but the truth is that mass incarceration in large part, you know, lengthy sentences for a violent crime is a much bigger contributor to mass incarceration than sentences imposed for, for people for nonviolent drug offenses. But I think that, that many lawmakers believe that we can just meaningfully reduce the number of the prison population and meaningfully address mass incarceration by only focusing on nonviolent drug offenders or by categorically excluding, say, people who are convicted of class one felonies or people who are serving life without parole. And so... That approach, and to the extent that that approach continues, that's where I start to feel troubled because unless we can attack directly these false narratives about people who commit acts of violence as somehow less than human, as somehow other, I don't think we're ever really going to be able to meaningfully address sentencing reform. I've seen it in my own work with death penalty abolition we have fixated on um, abolishing the death penalty in some instances by advocating to replace it 
by an equally draconian penalty, right? life without parole. And so I've, I've seen that approach to criminal legal reform a number of times throughout the years. And that concerns me because I think that if, if that's the approach that we take, we're never going to get we're never going to get to a place where where we're really thinking seriously about these draconian penalties that that we're that we're handing out so casually. So I feel a mixture. I feel a mixture. It's it's again, it's the both and. Yeah, the both and. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's an incredibly important point. And just your time and being with us, Kristen, you inspire me. I'm so glad you're in the world. I'm so glad you're in the fights. I love the way you think, and I think that um, we all have a lot to learn from you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. I ain't gonna let it bring me down. My pain's like a flame in the forest. I'll explain in the chorus. Listening to two experts have a conversation like that, I there are so many points that were made that Kristen said or the questions that Ashley asked. And I think the biggest thing, and you talked about mitigating circumstances at the beginning of this that are not thought about, the nuance of it. And trauma is not resolved by infliction of pain on another person. And I think that when we were just talking about that, like pain to anybody or blood, you know, like bloodshed should not equal other bloodshed. And so I don't, how do we get away from that thinking though, Andrew? How do we get away from that? I mean, to be honest with you, and this is a hill that I will die on. I am a proselytizer for artistic justice and restorative justice. And the philosophy that every person is worth saving and every person is worth more than their worst moment is the thing that has really helped me Yeah, to get in a safe place to heal. And then and then hopefully the hope is right. The hope is to help other people heal from their harm and their mistakes and their trauma, you know, and hopefully give them a, uh, a sense of safety. Because when you don't feel safe, you don't want to address that because our system is built on let's shame people. And of course, you want to hide when you're ashamed because you don't feel safe to go. I made a mistake because that is not something our society says we can do is make mistakes. We don't get to we don't get to learn on that level. That's the one thing I think about is this experiential learning of life. Like we have to practice this thing in order to understand it better as human beings, as these sentient beings, we don't get to just, it's not in a book. We, there's no book that says this is what you need to do if harm is happens to you. But I think we're learning that that stone when it's drowning, when I was committed my crime, I was drowning and I sure in the hell did not feel safe. I felt threatened by everyone around me. Everybody, even my own mother made me feel threatened, who I love and knew I could trust with everything. But in that moment, I couldn't. And I think had I had a different set of belief systems around me and other people having different belief systems, I would have felt safe to to say I need help before the harm had been created. I don't know. It's, it's, It's so much. It is so much to think about. The systems are not in place. So trauma, walking around in trauma, and where do you go to feel trauma? I don't know. It's definitely not in prison. It's definitely not with life sentences. That doesn't heal. You go from, you're being a traumatized individual coming into a traumatizing environment. It's definitely not prison. Not as though the prison that was built and we continue to to straddle the lines with. I know Dean Williams has an, an amazing concept of the way it should look. But I know there's a lot of people that still believe and this is a place you are, you are, you're an inmate. And that is the end of that conversation. You are subservient. You are less than shame. It gets built in again. So yeah, our processes and systems in place, they're not for, they're not for what I hope people want. And I I know it's easy to say it's a mistake when a crime is committed. I know this is a different level. This is a greater level when crime happens. But you're also saying that they cannot be redeemed. There is no redemption in you. That you are a human being that deserves nothing. And so then it becomes this weird like, I I go back to like Krista Nelson and abolishing the death penalty. But now we've taken this we don't want death sentences anymore, but yet we're still going to throw people away for the rest of their lives. There's no there's no room for the redemption in those. So what happens is, is there's the displacement theory, right? All these stones get tossed in and tossed in and they sink. 
what happens is that water starts overflowing. It has nowhere else to go. And it's because all these stones keep getting tossed in and tossed in and sinking and sinking. And then where does the water go? There's no more ripple because it's all gone. It's just devastating nothing. Mass incarceration is that. It totally is. All those stones get, they sink in the depths and the darkest parts. And we're talking about a placid lake where it looks like glass. You toss in that stone. But the reality is, is the water we're in, it is a choppy, churning sea because of the systems in place built upon so much hate and anger that we have to address systems that we for far too long have thought we're fixing our problems when really they're just they're band-aiding it i saw this the other day there was a little itty bitty band-aid on the sidewalk outside and i go that's in my mind this is what i thought i was like that's what that's what the legal legal system is this little itty bitty band-aid on some concrete there's no healing on concrete you can't put a band-aid on a crack and you definitely can't put a band-aid on a bullet hole For Within Season 2, we have our resident poet, William S. Graham, from the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, back with us in the virtual room. In all of our interviews, Will sits, listens, and then crafts an individualized poem for each interview. Here's Will. Clemency. An abnormal fear caused by confined spaces. A life running, untied shoelaces. Faces. So many faces all facing me I reach deep down in my soul only to see I must now live for two legacies his and mine his and mine beyond the drawn lines I search to find blind mercy an electric chair in my heart shockingly swimming with the sharks the water washes away my rust I begin to honor my hope and my faith I begin to love and truly trust the real me, the real me, the real me, an artist of freedom forever. I ask, who deserves, or better yet, what is clemency? For more content, music, poetry, and visual art, look deeper within at thisiswithin.com. Within is... Ashley Hamilton, executive producer. Andrew Draper, co-host. Denise Presson co-host Terry Mosley producer Angel Lopez media production and creative support William S. Graham Denver Complex creative consultant Sean Marshall associate producer Travis Barnes creative music producer Sarah Berry associate producer Matthew Labonte segment co-host Brett Phillips segment co-host Within is a collaboration between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Thank you for listening and choosing to look within. I'm seeing life through night vision While the statistics predict him I'll be another victim We earn stripes, they politic You know how we get them Mission accomplished Living life can cost you No every form that gets me will never prosper And if I lost your partner Please excuse me Follow me closely Homie, or you might lose me Don't confuse me I got them wondering who's he My life story's the testament of a true chief And you'll see the key Is breaking free from the troubles Between a couple of thieves, it's silly yours, but beware, I'm about to take it down.